So we'll be in Matthew chapter 3 today. Matthew chapter 3. While you're going there, I want to maybe recap where we've uh, been going for the last couple of weeks at the beginning of the book of Matthew, starting with even before Christmas of who this Jesus is and who Matthew wants us to know Jesus is. And he doesn't begin with a silent night or, or, a, or you know, a baby in a manger, but he begins by telling us the heritage, the lineage, the family tree and story of Jesus that includes some really shady characters, the kinds of people that should show up probably on a Jerry Springer show. And instead of keeping them a secret, Matthew wants us to know about them so that we will know that this Jesus is different. This Jesus takes what is broken and makes something beautiful out of it, including crazy family stories that are in his own family tree, so that we would know that this Jesus is not ashamed of that which is broken, but this Jesus wants to take that which is broken and include it into his own family. And Matthew also wants us to know secondarily that this is not an accident, and Matthew goes to great lengths over the entirety of his, of his gospel to let us know that this is not an accident, this is not a plan B, by telling us ways in which Jesus is fulfilling Scripture that is hundreds or even thousands of years old. And so he constantly makes reference to different prophets and prophecies that were spoken about what God was doing to redeem, rescue, and save his people. And Matthew wants you to know that this thing that Jesus is doing to save all the nations is not an accident. God is not surprised by the fact that you and I have a tendency to wander away from God's plan. God is not surprised when we have doubts about whether God is real and what He has done for us and Jesus is real. He's not surprised. He's not offended. But instead, He has already made a way for you and I to come back to Him through Jesus. And Matthew, over the course of time, always makes reference to the ways in which Jesus is doing God's original plan and He wants to show you how He's fulfilled these kinds of prophecies spoken about Him. And we pick up in Matthew chapter 3. Seeing again who Jesus was, last week we saw that there was a couple of, uh, or the last two weeks we've seen different responses to this Jesus. The first one were some far off Gentiles known as the Magi. At Christmas time we call them wise men. And the reason we say that they are wise is not because the word wise is in the Bible, but because they, they seem to have a wisdom about who Jesus was that revealed what they believed about him. And they brought him gold as if he were a king. They brought him incense as if this baby Jesus were a priest. But they also brought him myrrh, an embalming fluid. Sometimes it has medicinal qualities, but usually it was used to embalm a dead body to make light of the fact that this Jesus, while adorable little child Jesus, will one day die before he makes it to the retirement age. He will be a sacrifice for his people. And it's not a welcoming party that comes to give Jesus an entrance. Instead, even the inn couldn't make a room for him and his mother. His family probably didn't make room for him to stay there. And the king, the magistrate, the governor over that area sent his people to destroy and kill not only him, but every small child in that area. Herod wanted to kill him. So in chapter 3, we pick up. In those days... John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. 
And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan, in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We believe that this is God's Word, and if we will listen to it and hear it, not just be hearers only, but doers of it, then we will not only read this word, but God's word will read and challenge us. So let's spend the next time together and let's walk through this interesting little story with a few different themes, some of which should probably jump out at you and should sound quite familiar, and some of them maybe not so. First and foremost, you saw there something we saw last week, verse 3. Matthew, in telling us about even John, quotes the prophet Isaiah. He quotes the Old Testament. And so for Matthew, the Old Testament is not something that's outdated or worthless, but instead it's also God speaking to us. And he wants us to know that when God speaks, God fulfills his word. He fulfills his promise. God is not dishonest. God cannot lie. And so when John comes along, it's not an accident. It's not as though God is like, oh, I don't know what to do with these crazy people and their messed up lives. I, I better think of something. Maybe I'll send John and maybe I'll send Jesus. That's not the case. Instead, this seems to be right in line with God's plan to restore his people. It's part of the plan, as we see later even in the New Testament, that's been in place before the world was even created. So Matthew wants you to know that this John is a fulfillment of Scripture, that this John and what he's doing in the wilderness and the thing that he's preaching is evidence for us to see that our God's will cannot be thwarted. Our God's will cannot be stopped. Neither you nor me nor anything we've done can stop this amazing thing that God is doing. And we will either be a part of it or God will accomplish his will without us. 
We're not going to get in the way of it, but instead God is going to do it and the fulfillment of His promises is going to take place before our very eyes. God's Word is true. It cannot be thwarted. But you'll see the first theme that comes out here that shows up in the majority of this particular book and elsewhere in the Gospels is a phrase that you'll see repeated next chapter by Jesus Himself. And the phrase is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so John is preaching something, but to summarize it simply, Matthew says that what John is preaching can be summarized by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so there's already some themes here. Maybe they're common for us. I know for a while we spent a great deal of time talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Matthew refers to the kingdom of God as the kingdom of heaven. It's not that there's something different between you know, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. It's just that Matthew is a, is a good religious guy and He knows that you're not supposed to take the Lord's name in vain, and so he's going to be careful when he chooses to use the word God. And so instead of saying God, the kingdom of God, he says the kingdom of heaven, kind of like we would say the kingdom of gosh, right? Which, let's be honest, may be just the same thing and just as bad, right? But Matthew just wants us to know that there's a kingdom taking place here, and its inauguration is the arrival of Jesus. And there's a response that's appropriate. So we've talked about the kingdom before. I won't go into great depth, but basically it's simple. There's a king that's coming. There's a kingdom that does not presently exist, but is on its way here. And in Jesus, it is manifest, it is obvious, but on the other hand, it will not be completely present and active until Jesus returns to bring it about. Kingdom is coming, and so you better act accordingly. We shared this uh, several months ago. This is what politicians do every November, right? Hey, if you elect me, this is what it's like when I'm in charge, right? And they start promising all sorts of things. Hey, if you vote for me when I'm in charge, this is what my authority will look like. When I'm, you know, governor, when I'm senator, when I'm president, this is what I'm going to do. And it's the same concept here. John is simply saying, look, a king is coming, and this is what you ought to do because this is what it's going to look like. This ought to be your new loyalty. There is something happening and a kingdom is on his way and his king is at hand. His kingdom is at hand and the king is coming and so you better do something. And the thing that we ought to do, John tells us, is to repent. Repent. Now that's kind of a simple but sometimes churchy word. I don't know how often you hear this word. I don't know how often you use this word. But in, in the particular context from from which John is speaking, this is a military term. This would be a term most commonly used amongst military officers. And it's a direct order for about face. And so if you're walking in one direction, to about face means to stop, turn, and walk in the opposite direction. And this is a common term, a military term, that would have been known by most of the people, certainly the Roman soldiers that were active and on duty at this particular time. And John wants you to know that in the same way that a soldier who was going one way, who was commanded by his superior officer, is told to repent and turn around, so also you and I ought to respond when this Jesus King comes and is here. Because when this new king comes, man, you're going to want to turn around. You're going to want to turn away from whatever you might hold dear. You're going to want to turn away from your loyalties, the things that you worship, the things that you think are most important, because this Jesus is coming and he's bringing a new kingdom. And it's a good kingdom. He's a new type of king. He's not a king who comes and destroys and vanquishes his foe and subjects them 
to violence in order to have their loyalty, but this king comes to die in their place to win them over, to transform their hearts, so that while they were once walking away from God's will, while they were once wandering, when they see this Jesus, they will turn and see him and ultimately, finally know who God is. Seek him. Walk closer to him. Be brought near to him by this Jesus. That's the kind of kingdom and that's the kind of response. Repentance. It's, 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 it's associated with a couple different things we'll see in this particular chapter. Not only is repentance a changing of the mind, a changing of your understanding about the world, kind of like a king who is coming. Hey, act different. There's a new king, right? But it also is accompanied by a couple of things. The first thing it says it's accompanied by is confession of sins. You'll see in verse 6, John says that while he was baptizing people and preaching this repentance, the symbols that came along with it were confession of sin, in this case, baptism. And then the challenge he gives to a couple of other religious people is fruit that's in keeping with that repentance. So confessing of sins, baptism, and then fruit that comes along with confession and repentance. So if I had a prayer for you, if I had a, a thing that you might hear, is that it would be summarized this way. This Jesus is coming. His kingdom is on the way. And even though, man, sometimes it doesn't look like Jesus is in charge of anything. Sometimes it looks like chaos in our world. Sometimes it looks like things are out of control. The good news, the gospel as we would call it, is this Jesus has done something that has radically changed the way that the world works. And to believe it and to even consider the possibility that it is true will change everything. To even begin to consider the possibility that this Jesus has accomplished something on our behalf that's reordered the universe starts to change our direction and starts to turn us maybe even in a complete and opposite direction. Even to begin to consider the possibility that it's true changes the way we see the world. And it also changes the way we see God's will and our obedience or disobedience to it. So did you catch that? Confessing their sins. Confession. Now that's a weird thing because here's an almighty God who knows all things. He's not unaware of what's going on in your heart, in your mind, in your life. He's not unaware. And so what's the point of confessing something to God that he already knows? And it's simply the same thing as declaring the good news that Jesus is a king who's coming with a new kingdom. You're simply admitting what is and what is not. And one of the things that accompanies when you see that Jesus might be real and that his reign might be true is you begin to see the things that are inconsistent with God's kingdom. And to admit that God is in charge and that we are not simply comes along with repentance. And to turn away from our old ways of thinking means that we have to admit that our old ways of thinking are not that great not that healthy we call that confession of sin there's power in it the bible tells us over and over and over again that if we confess our sins if we just admit to god that what we have done is not consistent with god's perfect and holy will then amazing things will happen even to confess our sins 
is to expose God faith, God's faithfulness. That He will actually forgive our sins. And not only just forgive our sins, but He will forgive and cleanse it in such a way that we will be righteous in His sight. As if the things that we have accomplished and done that are against His will had never happened. Confess. But there's also something else here that I, I want to draw attention to. Something that we talk about on a regular basis and spend a couple minutes maybe exposing just kind of what the Bible teaches about it. And, and this is baptism. So they were baptized confessing their sins. As if those things go together. So the confession of sin and the baptism in the river go together. They just they work together. The book of Romans tells us that baptism is an active participation in that transformation and that repentance, turning away from our old ways of thinking. The baptism is actually a, a participation in the gospel. It's not simply saying that Jesus died and was buried, and so therefore we're buried in the water, but it's also saying that in the same way that Jesus did not stay dead, so also we do not stay under the water. That's why we call it a baptism and not drowning, right? We come out of the water. And until I've mentioned it to you, you've never been afraid of watching a baptism and worrying, oh, I wonder if this pastor is going to drown that person, right? You're not afraid of that until now, right? But there's this active participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We're not just pretending that we understand Jesus' death. We're coming face to face with it because the truth remains that if you are under the water and you stay there, it's not a symbolic death that will take place. A real death will take place. But as we share on a regular basis, we're not afraid of anyone drowning us in the water in baptism. And it's a symbol such that when we realize we're not afraid of drowning in water, so also we are not afraid that the grave will hold us captive. In the same way that Jesus fearlessly went into the grave and walked out victoriously, in the same way that we fearlessly go into the water and come out victoriously, we also one day miraculously, mysteriously, will die, breathe our last, go into a grave, and one day Jesus will pull us out. And so our baptism is a symbol, it's a powerful participation in the good news of what he's accomplished on our behalf. But it's also something else. Baptism is admitting something. In this particular case, in verse 6, it's confessing our sins. It's confessing our brokenness. It's an entrance into the water and an exit into something else. This is common throughout the Bible, right? This is, this is kind of a theme. You go in the water and then you're somewhere else. Whether it's, uh, you know, the, the flood that, that kind of wiped everything out and then lo and behold, Noah comes out with his family and, and they mess up as soon as they're done, right? It's a new creation, sort of, but it kind of isn't. They just go back to doing what they were doing. It's a fresh start, but they start to mess it up, right? And then, and then here we go, the, God leads through Moses, his people out of captivity in Egypt, and there's a great exodus, that's the name of the book, that tells the story, and on their way out, the waters are parted, and they cross the water into a new place, and instead of going like, yay, this is awesome, we're a new creation, God's given us a fresh start, let's do everything right, they start to mess up again, it's called wandering for a while, um, even though God provides, they're like, man, I wish we could go back through the water, on the other side of the water, where we had it really nice, which they didn't, 
And then finally, after all those people, after they're bickering and complaining, because church folks are different now, right? They don't, they don't do that now, only back then. After the bickering and complaining generation died off, they crossed a river into the promised land. And way, way, yay, we're so happy that we got this new promised land that what they do, they just jump right back into their old forms of idolatry. And so this is not new. This, this picture of going in the water and coming out different is, is not New. It's a, it's a common theme, but there's something different that takes place in this baptism that you and I celebrate, and it's accompanied by some things that reveals that we believe something about this baptism and what it represents. It's different than any sort of transition through water the Bible talks about. And the way in which that it's different is it starts with the confession of sins. So, side note here baptism literally means like to immerse or to dunk. This is not like a there's no metaphor here. That's just what the word baptize means, right? And you know this because if I said like, hey, I, they were baptized by fire, there's just a sense in which what you're doing in fire burns all of you, right? If I was like, hey, it's a baptism of fire, you wouldn't just be like, oh, he burned his finger and therefore was baptized by fire, right? Baptizing is, is an immersion. It's a covering. And so in the same picture here, baptism is an immersion into the water. So side note here, what we believe about baptism is that it's an immersion into water because we're, remember, facing the death of Jesus under the water. We're participating in Jesus' death. But we're also confessing of sin. So something we do because we love God's Word and we simply want God's Word to shape us and guide us is we want to model our practices as a church after what God's Word reveals to us. And so we don't practice what a lot of churches practice, which is infant baptism. There's no, there's no knock on it. We're not saying it's evil or terrible. We're just saying that we think it's more consistent in Scripture to do it this way. For the obvious reasons that you shouldn't put a baby underwater, right? Just don't do that. You hear any good advice from me today? Don't put your baby underwater, right? So, so there's a sense in which to fully participate in the death and burial of Jesus Christ is kind of bad for, you know, for a baby, right? Don't do that. You shouldn't do it. Even the CPS like agrees with me on this one. Don't do it, okay? And so it's difficult for a baby to participate in this kind of baptism that John is preaching and that Romans begins to tell us is the picture of the gospel. Instead, it seems to be that the, the baptism that is spoken of in the Bible is more consistent with the baptism of people who are able to believe because there's the second part of baptism that's really difficult for babies to do and that's to confess sins, Right? To confess that we are sinful and that Jesus is Lord. Trust me on this one, I have tried. I have two little girls, and to get them to confess sin when they're babies is really difficult. It's not because I wasn't trying, right? It's not because you shouldn't do that, right? Now I have to change your diaper. Stop that. Daddy doesn't like that, right? You can say that all you want, but there's a sense in which this, this second part of baptism connecting with the confession of sin is difficult for babies to participate in. Would you agree? So, don't dunk a baby underwater, eh. and, and good luck trying to get a baby to confess that Jesus is Lord and that they're sinful. And so we just see that there's a picture of baptism that's more full when it's experienced when someone sees that a new king is coming, a kingdom is on the way. And so we confess that our lives and our hearts are turned away from God in its natural state. And thank God by his love, he turns us. We repent to see that God is good. We confess that he is good. We confess that we are not. 
And then we participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, knowing that we're not going to drown in the water any more than Jesus stayed buried in the tomb. Maybe just a side note to share with this is why we practice what we do. And so we baptize those who have confessed that Jesus is Lord, that confess that their sins are inconsistent with God's will, and that being buried in his likeness in the water is our participation in the good news of who Jesus is. Verse 7, but. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So repentance is not only something that we experience when God turns our hearts toward him to see that Jesus is good and merciful and that he gives us new life, a new creation, but also we see that there are fruit that accompany this type of repentance. So why is this important? Because a lot of us like to internalize our religious affiliation. We like to maybe, I'll I'll use words that, I don't know if they're good or bad, but they just kind of are the common vernacular for today. And that's, we like to spiritualize Jesus and God and our religion. And we'll say things like, I'm not religious, but I'm just spiritual, which I don't even know what that means, but it sounds smart to someone who doesn't know that you're full of it, right? I'm not religious, I'm just spiritual. And so it becomes really a way to privatize our own beliefs so that you have no judgment, you have no authority over me. So you can't say, hey, follow this rule. You'll be like, well, I, just, I don't believe in what your religion says. I'm just spiritual, right? And so what that tends to do is it creates a, a strictly internal and private understanding of the divine. It's a personal thing. It's a private thing. Now, don't hear me wrong. What God does for us in Jesus is very intimate, It's extremely intimate. Jesus comes in and he starts to pry our hands loose from the things we hold the most tightly. In fact, that tends to be what Jesus does so well. If you come to Jesus and you're like, I love you, Jesus, but you can't have this thing, do you know what he goes after so ruthlessly first and foremost? That thing! And so there was a rich man and he was like, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you. And he's like, oh yeah, rich man? Don't be rich anymore. Give all your riches away. And the rich man was like, you know what, I would rather stay rich than to follow you. And so he leaves. And another guy came and he's like, hey, I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to be a part of your kingdom. And he's like, oh, by the way, you're probably going to be homeless because the Son of Man, hey, you know, even foxes have a place to sleep in a hole in the ground. And, and even different animals have like nests or burrows. But Jesus, if you're going to follow me, hey, by the way, I don't even have a home. I'm going to die homeless one day. And that guy was like, hey, I don't know about that. And the one thing that the people hold so tightly, Jesus tends to start to pry out of our hands first and foremost. Because it's one thing to say that we believe in something. It's something entirely to begin to show fruit in our lives of that loyalty. It's one thing to say that God is good. It's another thing to have fruit in your life that's consistent with it. And so while these people are highly religious, it's this a Pharisee and a Sadducee come up. Instead of responding, hey, good, you've got it figured out because you are a highly religious person. Your religion will save you. Instead of that, he says, you are a brood of vipers. I don't know what a brood is, but it sounds bad because it's apparently a nice word for a group of vipers. Not puppies, not kittens, vipers. And instead of saying, hey, man, you guys are awesome. Keep up the good work. He says, stop what you're doing. 
and start to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because if your heart really is set on the goodness of God, then your life will start to reflect it. And if our loyalty really is to the new King Jesus, then we'll start to let go of our loyalty to other things that seem like kings and have rulership over our own lives. And it hurts because we're holding on for so tight that when Jesus pries our hands loose, the fruit that's consistent with repentance is painful. And there's an interesting thing that happens because we tend to think that instead of knowing that Jesus is real and believing that it is real. And so here's the good news for some of you. Maybe if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or you have a hard time believing that this Jesus really is who he says he is, there's good news. This, This is really good for you because often there's a distracting thing that we tell people who are not Christian and we're like, hey, you need to get religious. You need to start following these rules. And these guys come along who are really good at following rules. And a Pharisee who, by the way, was a highly religious man, he observed all of the details of external worship. He attended everything. Everything religious, he was a part of it. He participated in it and he probably led it. And he was very careful about his rituals. He was a firm believer in the resurrection of the dead. He believed in angels. He believed in spirits, spiritual things. And in all that was written in the Bible, he believed it. And he also believed in all of the traditions that his fathers and grandfathers had passed down to him. He was overdone with his religiosity. He was not an irreligious man. This Pharisee was a ritualist, as one pastor calls it, of the first order. And he probably, when he looked in the mirror, thought, if there's a righteous religious person, it's got to be me. There's nobody who's following the rules better than me. And there's good news for you and I who have broken the rules, who have rebelled against God. That instead of saying to the Pharisee, who was highly religious, hey, good for you, high five on your religiosity, John simply says, flee, the wrath of God is coming. No matter how religious you might think you are. There was another, it was a Sadducee apparently that came. A Sadducee different from the Pharisee, but also a different kind of religious person. He was highly religious, but maybe his religion was different than the Pharisee. He didn't believe in the spiritual things. He was more of an objective thinker. He he observed certain traditions, but he was open-minded enough that he didn't focus only on the details. He observed the law of Moses. He was an originalist. And he clung to the letter of the law of Moses. And he followed all of them, accepted those laws. He was a highly religious person. And instead of congratulating this religious person, John says, you better run because the wrath of God is on its way. So here's the third theme. We saw repentance. We've seen baptism. And this third one we see is the wrath of God. So you're sitting there going, I knew it. I knew you were going to do the fire and brimstone thing. I knew you were going to do it. Well, you're right. Here we go. Okay. And I'm going to make this as, as painless and yet also hopefully as painful as possible because here we go. So the wrath of God, it's a, it's, it's a difficult concept to believe because if one, on one sense, we believe that God is good. It's difficult to believe that the world can be so disordered like it is. And there's something just inside of us that really hates the thought of an angry God. And so we usually go to great lengths. In fact, you would expect this of John. If you wanted to build a bunch of people, like a movement, if you wanted to, like, I don't know, win over disciples, you should probably use mild language and say things that are really attractive and nice um, and, and not really say things that are, you know, 
hurtful or, or harsh or, or speak directly to people's own issues. Namely, the wrath of God. Hey, God's mad at you. Well, that makes me want to love him, right? And so the wrath of God, it's a difficult concept, but I, I want to maybe reframe the conversation so you'll see that the wrath of God is an incredibly powerful and incredibly good thing. Because here's what I believe to be true, and the Bible seems to bear this out, is that if God is not wrathful, then God is not good. If God does not have the capacity for wrath and anger and fury, then he is not good. And if you have a problem with that, then I encourage you to look at your own lives. So for example, the things we value, we tend to have a protective instinct about. So this is just how it applies to me. This is just where it applies. It can apply to you differently. Maybe it's a car, a house, a person, a significant other. I don't know. For me, it's, it's I have two little girls, and, and they're three and five. And so here's how this works. If you hurt them, harm them, or anger them in any way, I get mad. If you hurt the people I love, I get mad. And here's what I would argue. If you harmed my child, who right now is the picture of innocence, I can see her broken, rebellious heart. I can see both of them. I can see it in both of them. And I pray that Jesus will save them. But for as far as I can see, they are in a stage of innocence. And if you hurt them and I don't get mad, I'm a terrible father. Like if you harm that which I love and I go, that's cool then there's a sense in which the problem is mine and I am not a good father. If terrible and evil and harmful things happening in the world does not upset you and does not make you angry, then there is something, my friend, wrong with you. Like when an idiot breaks into any place and opens fire on people. God forbid, a couple of years ago, an elementary school like if that doesn't make something inside of you start to boil, then there's probably more evil in you than you're willing to admit. And I would argue, if God in His mercy looking down on those evil things says, that's cool, that doesn't bother me, then God is not good. But praise God that He is good because that which is evil infuriates Him. And when the world, namely the enemy, turns his sights on you and me to destroy us, that fills our God with anger. It fills him with righteous indignation. He is not apathetic. And when the enemy sets his sights on destroying you and me, our God is not surprised or apathetic. Instead, he sends his son to bear the punishment and the wrath that you and I deserve. And if our God is not angry at that which is evil, then he is not good. And if killing a bunch of children in an elementary school doesn't make God wrathful, then God is not good. He is perfect and holy. Here's the scary part. This is the fire and brimstone part. The scariest and most dangerous evil that has affected your life and mine is the evil that lurks within our own heart. No one has betrayed you. No one has disappointed you. No one has hurt you more than you. And the painful reality in my life is that the most devastating things that I've endured in my own life are things that I decided for myself. The most pain and suffering I've seen in my own life, the things that bear scars more deeply than anything else, are things that I did myself. 
And if God's wrath is against that which is evil, because He's good, then the scary thing I see here is that God's wrath ultimately is going to be poured out on you and me. And so John says, whether you're religious, whether you're as religious as you come, just like Pharisees and the Sadducees, or whether you're broken, hurting, and in need, whether your life is marked by rebelling, by rebelling against God and doing whatever you want as if you are king, or if, you're mar- if your life is marked by following as many rules so that you will please God, both people hear this word that John says, you'd better run because God's wrath is being poured out against those who are evil, including the evil that's hiding in your own heart. The evil that you don't want to admit. The evil that when no one is looking comes out. He says, even now the axe is being laid to the root of the trees. God's wrath is already coming. And so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and it's thrown. Here's the fire and brimstone part. Take for what it's worth. This is John's words here. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, it's cut down and it's thrown into the fire. And Jesus, apparently according to John, is powerful not just because he's a savior, but he also has a winnowing fork in his hand. And he will thresh, he will clear the floor and gather his wheat into the barn and the shaft he will burn into the quenchable fire. Jesus is not just a baby in a manger. In this particular passage, he looks a lot like the grim reaper. And he is chopping down that which is not fruitful. And he is burning it in an unquenchable fire. But friend, now that you know the wrath of God that ultimately is going to be poured out on you and me, I want you to hear the good news of his mercy. Did you catch what John said? He said, flee. He didn't say, hey, God's wrath is coming. That's it. Good luck. Instead, he he seems to imply that you ought to do something. That if God's wrath is coming, then there must be an escape. We must be running from God's wrath into something because after all, we've repented. We've turned away from that which is evil. And so if we're running to God and that's not running into His wrath, then we must be running to something. And Matthew wants us to know in verse 13 that that something, that someone to whom we run to escape the wrath of God looks like this in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him. Saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Did you, did you catch his, his self-righteous tendencies? Did you, did you catch the way he measured it? He was like, I'm not good enough to be with you, Jesus. I'm not good enough. And Jesus... Didn't, didn't even argue, right? Jesus didn't say, there, there, John, you're right. You're not that bad. Instead, he goes, well, maybe so. He doesn't contradict that John shouldn't be baptizing Jesus. He doesn't contradict the fact that John probably is not fit to baptize Jesus. After all, John is an interesting fellow. He's kind of an outcast, right? You think you're organic, right, dude? Are you living on locusts and honey? You know what I'm saying? Like, John would put Whole Foods out of business, Oh, all natural? You're against like genetically modified stuff, right? How many locusts and honey have you? Did you oh, is that honey? You got honey? Did you get it from the bees? This is the kind of dude this John is, right? So he's, he's kind of a different fellow. Of all people, maybe Jesus would think he's kind of got it all figured out. And instead of contradicting that John is not worthy to baptize Jesus, he simply says, you're going to do this. 
Not because you're special, but instead, this is going to fulfill righteousness. Not on you, not by anything that you've done, but because of what I've done. So much so that when Jesus is baptized, there's a voice of God and the Spirit of God seems to appear like a dove descending on Jesus. And a voice from the heavens says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Here is the good news. God's wrath is being poured out on that which is evil, including the evil that exists in our own hearts. But if we will run to Jesus, then Jesus will take our place. And in a miraculous and amazing way, God will look at you and say the exact same thing to you and to me that he says to his son. Not because we're special, but because God has done something in Jesus. And in our place, he has suffered and his wrath is poured out to the point where Jesus cries out on the cross, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And our God will see his son, Jesus, and look at you, his son, his daughter, and say, you are my beloved And instead of wrath that you deserve, I want to give you my pleasure. And the good news is that not only did Jesus take our place and bear this wrath, but he took our place so that when we participate in this good news, right? When we're baptized into his identity, we come out of the water not to fail like like the people that have crossed through water into a new life, right? We don't fail like Noah and his family after they crossed out of the water and God delivered them through the water. We don't fail like those who crossed the Jordan who crossed the Red Sea. Instead, we are identified with Jesus such that God does not pour out his wrath on us, but he looks at us in a miraculous way and says, you are my beloved son, and because of Jesus, I am pleased with you. Incredibly good news. There is wrath. There is real wrath. And you and I, whether we want to admit it or not, deserve it. And if God isn't angry about the things that I've done, then he's not good. If God isn't angry with you about the things that you did when you were in junior high, that thing that you said to so-and-so, that thing you said to your parents, right? If God's not angry about that, then he's not good. And you and I deserve a fate worse than death. And it looks like, according to John's words, an unquenchable fire, a fire that never goes out. But praise God, if we would see what Jesus has done, that there is pleasure that God expresses to his son and those with him, then we participate in it. We are invited to turn away and to be surrounded by it. I kind of want to wrap up with a thought that um, it's a little bit half-baked, and so um, anytime that I engage in like, I, I want to always contextualize what we're talking about in the gospel. And anytime I engage in that, I, I want to do so carefully and cautiously, knowing that I don't want to just interject my opinions, but I want to point out something about this. Jesus is a judge here. Jesus is a judge. He's not just a nice guy, but apparently John wants us to know that there's wrath coming. And while Jesus can save us, while identifying with him and receiving the good news of what he's accomplished for us, that Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God and given us the pleasure that he deserved, he's also a judge and he will gather that which is his, those those that are called by his name, into a safe place, it says into the barn, but the rest they'll be burned like trash. Jesus is judge. And I want you to let, you know, this is encouraging. The, uh, the events of this last week, some people who, um, who claimed a religious affiliation, they were uh, a form of il- Islamic fundamentalists that 
apparently their prophet was defamed, and so they went in and, and they took matters into their own hands and, and murdered some people this last week. It's happened before in the name of religious faith, religious faith right? In the name of religious belief. And I would argue it's going to keep happening. And here's why. This is what I, I, don't, I don't want to like, just sit here and rail against something, but I want to give you the good news that you and I celebrate. Because what happened, apparently some cartoonists in Paris, they defamed, well, let's be honest, they defamed every world religion because that's what they do. Their job is to make people laugh, so they're naturally going to kind of blaspheme against everything. But they happened to blaspheme against the prophet Muhammad, which is kind of a big deal because the Quran says pretty specifically not to do that. You can't dishonor Muhammad. You can't speak ill of, the, of Muhammad. In fact, if I were a good and faithful Muslim, I would say, grace and peace be upon him every time I spoke his name, right? Muhammad, grace and peace be upon him, right? That, I would, because you can't dishonor his name. You can't dishonor him in any way, much less like make cartoons that defame him or, or disrespect him. Now, here's the, the catch, though. I actually read the Quran, and there's actually ways to, dis, you know, to defame Muhammad that are weird. Like, you can't talk louder than Muhammad when you're in, in the room with the prophet. So, I mean, I, I mean, there's like there's all sorts of ways you can dishonor the prophet, and then the punishment for that is you either get beaten or killed. So now we're, now we're in a weird spot, right? Now we've got to kill people who dishonor the prophet, including if they like, jumped in, if, if you st- stepped in front of him, if you held your head higher than him, or if you were louder than him in the same room, right? And so what happens is, in that system, is that blasphemy is taken very seriously. And it's the job of those who believe that blasphemy is taken seriously to lay out justice on the prophet Muhammad and God Allah's behalf. We're judge, jury, and executioner, right? We go out, if we believe that this is true, and if anyone dishonors what we believe, if they speak against our religious affiliation, we're to go out and, in in fact, it's justifiable to inflict violence upon people. And I have incredibly good news for you. Our God takes blasphemy just as seriously. He takes the shame and reproach that the world has to give very seriously. So much so that our Jesus happily, not angrily or resentfully, our Jesus happily endured the blasphemy, the shame, the reproach of people. He gladly took it. So glad that he shares with you and me that if we endure persecution, that you're actually blessed And blessed are you if for Jesus' name's sake we endure persecution because in the end we will inherit the kingdom of God. And we can believe this so much such that if someone were to blaspheme against our God and punch us, strike us on the face, we can with great courage not lash out angrily, but we can turn our other cheek and invite them to strike us again. And the reason is that we believe our Jesus is judge. Our Jesus is able to judge. And you and I do not have to be judge, jury, and executioner. But the good news of what we believe, and I hope this differentiates us us from the people that we know, is that our Jesus happily bore our sorrows. He didn't run away from blasphemy. He didn't lay out a set of rules that set our, our, our course in motion to offer revenge for everyone who speaks ill against Jesus' name. But instead, he happily absorbed it in his own body because he is judge and he's a good and faithful judge a merciful judge so here's a practical application for this particular picture of jesus as judge in light of recent events 
we have good news. We have good news that Jesus is king and Jesus is judge. And we don't have to threaten death for anyone that doesn't believe it. But we do have to risk death in order to proclaim it. And we proclaim a good news of Jesus that's radically different. That while the radical fundamentalist may say, believe or die, we say, I will happily bear the reproach and death of Christ for the sake of his name. Because he ultimately is judge. We don't have to run out you know, vengefully and every evil word and blasphemous word that's said. We don't have to exact revenge. But instead, we can embrace that this Jesus ultimately is judge. This Jesus is king. This Jesus is in charge. And he's not afraid of people that don't like him or don't believe in him. He's not offended by people who run against him. He loves them and dies in their place. He doesn't desire to kill through the wrath and power of God, those that speak against Him. Instead, He wants to be killed so that they might live. And this Jesus would rather, instead of opening fire against innocent people, He would rather take the place of those innocents. And this Jesus, in a miraculous way, is not only present in, those, in the life of our persecution and blessing us in persecution, but He's also present with those who are persecuting such that if someone does open fire, we don't retaliate angrily. But here's a crazy one. You know what we do with those who persecute us? And I'm not talking about the ones that like won't let you say Christmas at school. That's not really persecution. That's not like being sawn in half, right? It's a little different. But if we are persecuted for our faith, do you know what we get to do with those people? We get to bless them and pray for them because they don't know that this Jesus is a good and faithful judge. They don't know that this Jesus is merciful. They don't know that they don't have to earn their standing before God. They don't have to submit themselves to five practices per day or their lifetime to be pleasing before God. All they have to do is flee from God's wrath, run to this good Jesus, who when we reach him and are received by him, God says, well done, I'm pleased with you, my son or daughter. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you... uh, not only command us to flee the wrath that's coming, but we thank you that you've already prepared a way out. And that way out is the mercy and goodness of Jesus. Uh, It's our temptation to take matters into our own hands. It's our temptation uh, to rely on our own religious behavior or we tend to measure how how faithful we are not by the fruit of repentance, but we tend to measure it by like how good we feel like we're doing and and the things that we've marked off of our to-do list. Um, God, help us to be faithful. Help us not to be disobedient, but help us ultimately to see that, that John's words of repentance were for the religious and the rebellious alike. And that for those of us who are broken and in need of a Savior, John says, run to Jesus. Be saved from God's wrath. But for those of us in this room who are highly religious and we tend to rely on our religiosity, we also hear the same words of Jesus. Stop, run to Jesus who will save us from the wrath of God. We thank, we thank you, God, that ultimately like your wrath is not the defining characteristic by which we know you, but instead the defining characteristic by which we come to know you is the mercy that you've shown us in Jesus. We thank you that he's a faithful and good and kind judge. 
so much so that we're not afraid what happens to us in this life. Instead, we simply know that there is good news to be proclaimed. And for those of the, uh, in the world that have not heard it, we, we boldly share our fruit of repentance and share this good news that Jesus is king, he is judge, and he is merciful. Our God is not exacting revenge on people who have sinned against him, but instead he is slow. He is slow not in the way that we think people are slow, but he's slow to anger and he's merciful. He's abundant in mercy. And he desires for all of us to see this good news, that we would find new life, a new creation, not marked by brokenness, but a new creation marked by a promise that will be revealed to us in in eternity. So count us in today. God, if if we're running from you, help us to turn away and repent of it. Help us to identify ourselves with you. Help us to be counted among that which God declares over Jesus. This is my beloved son, my beloved daughter, with whom I am well pleased. By our faith and trust in Jesus and the mercy of God, let that be so. It's in your name we ask it. Amen.